Hi, I'm Liz from Liz Gets Loaded. That's the money kind of loaded, but this is the show where I sit in my closet, drink wine, and talk about money and anxiety. I have both. Hello, hello, hi. It's me again. I have had a couple of thoughts rattling around in my brain around the idea of a middle class and the value and the choices that we all make around our spending. That doesn't sound broad and vague at all, does it? So I've kind of been chewing on these thoughts for a couple of days. I tried to make some notes and then I just decided I'm going to hit record and start talking and see if I can make some good points. I might make some good points. I might just talk a lot about my own thoughts and feelings. Let's find out. Okay. So this started because I did an episode of Inside Out Money. You probably all know that I am one of the rotating co-hosts on the new podcast, Inside Out Money. It's really fun. There's four four co-hosts and they're all wonderful. And I did an episode with the showrunner Maggie about lifestyle inflation. And she made an offhand comment about how she grew up middle-class and I made an offhand comment like, well, we all kind of think that we grew up middle-class, right? Like regardless of whether we did or not, most of us think that. And then one of the other co-hosts, Erica shared a calculator that the Washington post put out just recently, I think within the last week or so, where you can put in your income and your household size and your zip code, and it'll give you some data. And I thought that was really interesting. And so I did that. I am under no illusions that the two of us are not in the middle class these days. We have both sort of stumbled and locked into higher paying jobs in the last few years. That probably puts us outside of that, outside of that sphere. But I was curious about how I grew up and luckily my parents both worked for the government. And so it was actually pretty easy to look up approximately what they would have earned online when I was a kid. And so I did that. And then I just Googled like, okay, what would this be from this year to now inflation adjusted? And I put that into the calculator with the zip code where I lived when I was like in middle school. And I was not surprised at all. We were pretty close to like the median income. So there's a couple different ways that researchers measure like who's quote unquote middle class. Um, It's like how far you are from the poverty line, how far you are from like, I think the 60th percentile, or if you're in like the middle 60th percentiles, I don't know. I'm not a statistics person. I think it was like how close you are to the median, how far you are away from poverty level. And like, if you're in the sort of middle 60th percentile, 60 percentiles, oh gosh, I don't know. All right. Anyways, there's three things that they look at. And I was not surprised to see that my parents' inflation-adjusted income was like pretty close to the median. And we were, I think, on the low end for our zip code, which actually makes sense because we lived... I know my parents specifically chose a neighborhood with a very good school district. And I think it cost a little bit more to live in that neighborhood. So what I thought was interesting were there's some other... Just this article, and I'll link it in the show notes, had some other ways that people define the middle class and kind of surveyed people to say, do you think that being able to afford a home is what defines the middle class. Do you think it's having a college degree? I think homeownership is definitely a factor. I I wouldn't, I I mean, I personally wouldn't say college degree matters at all, but a a really common theme was just the ability to save, right? Like there's money. So the common themes were ability to save, right? Like there's a little bit of money left over every month, 
ability to deal with emergencies as they come up. So home repair, car repair, and ability to save. So ability to save for retirement, ability to save for kids' college funds. That all made a lot of sense to me. And I should say, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I think my parents really nailed it in a lot of ways, but I think really nailed it when it came to money. Like objectively, we were kind of dead center of the middle class. I don't talk to my parents that much about money, but I think that they are kind of the classic like millionaire next door, meaning they always drove used cars. They were like very good with money, meaning they really knew how to stretch a dollar. They knew how to spend in the places that it mattered, saved in the places that that it mattered. And so they were always on very secure financial footing. And I will say, I, I mean, such a huge privilege. I never once in my life worried about having enough money. And that I think is something a lot of us who are in that position take for granted. And it's easy for someone like me to say like, oh, you know, I didn't come from a lot of money. My family is middle-class, but like, even just the fact that I never heard my parents talking about worrying about money, that like, they never asked me to help out with a bill that they didn't like immediately want me to get a job as soon as I could to help with household finances, you know, on top of the fact that they just taught me some great lessons about how to manage my own money and to save a little bit from every paycheck. Like it went a long way. And I know that that's not something everyone has. And I, I feel really grateful and really happy and really lucky that that that's something that happened for me. So I found myself looking at this calculator though, and I put in our combined income and I was like, yeah, I'm not surprised that we're, we're not in the dark green bar where the middle class is. But then I got the idea from Maggie to put in just what our spending is. And that was also um, above. And I found myself having feelings about it. I was like, Oh no. And then I don't know. And then I was like, well, why do you say, Oh no, (laughs) like, why does that matter to you? And I, and, and it's so ingrained in us. I think like this idea that living more frugally is morally superior to spending the money that you have. And I kind of have to remind myself. And I, and I said in that episode, Like there is no prize for the most frugal person. There is no trophy for the person who saves the highest percentage of their money. Like you don't get any extra points in life for unnecessary suffering, right? But there is this tendency to sort of applaud frugality, even when it's unnecessary. And the example I always think of is Warren Buffett. And if you don't know who Warren Buffett is, he's a very well-known investor. He's a bajillionaire. No, he's literally a billionaire. And people love to talk about how Warren Buffett still lives in the house that he bought 50 years ago and I don't know, probably paid $20,000 for or something. I don't know. Actually, hang on. I'll look it up. Okay. Warren Buffett bought his house in 1958 for $31,000. And today it's probably worth more than $600,000, which is a lot of money, but not a lot of money if you're a billionaire. And I also looked, he drives a 2014 Cadillac. A quick Google search when results said it was retailed for about $23,000 one said it retailed for about $40,000 either way again that's a big difference like to you and me whether something costs $20,000 or $40,000 but if you're a billionaire it just doesn't matter my point is that people love to talk about Warren Buffett and how he still lives in this house he bought a million years ago for very little money how he drives an older car i think he likes to eat McDonald's egg McMuffins for breakfast which relatable they are delicious And he's like this folk hero for being a billionaire who still lives like a quote unquote regular person. And I think that's really interesting. Like what is the good in the world from that? The good in the world, if you live modestly and then you give the rest of your money away or use it for charity or something like that, I totally get it. But that's not really the narrative. The narrative is just he's a billionaire and he 
doesn't spend on these flashy things. Like you'd expect him to have a fancy house and you'd expect him to have a fancy car and you would expect him to eat a fancy breakfast. And someone smarter than I am and more educated than I am could probably speak more to why we're like that and why it's interesting. So that brings me to a comment that I saw on an Instagram post today. I really love, if you're not following on Instagram, Personal Finance Club, I think the team there just does a really good job of sharing basic concepts around personal finance in a really easy to understand and really digestible way. It's three people, Jeremy, Vivian, Shane. They're awesome. They don't pay me to say that. I just say it for free (laughs) because I like them. And there was a comment on one of their posts today. There were a couple posts about minimum wage. And the point of the post was like minimum wage is so low. It hasn't risen with inflation, with the cost of living. It hasn't risen in a really long time. And it's just incredibly low. And in one of the comments was something like, well, actually living on minimum wage really isn't hard. Like even though I earned a lot more than minimum wage, I just lived on minimum wage and that let me save a lot of money and it was great. (laughs) And I don't, you know, that's that person's experience and they're totally entitled to it and it's valid and it's not untrue. I mean, I don't know they're I don't don't know who's, I, I don't know the details of this person's finances, but I'm assuming that they're telling the truth that Uh, I think the point was they were saying this, it was like a couple, a married couple, and they were living on something like $20,000 a year for the two of them and saving the rest of their income and investing it so that they can retire early, which is great. I want to point out though, that there is a huge and massive difference between living on approximately the annual minimum wage because you choose to and living that on on that amount because you have to. And the example that comes to my mind is like, um, it's kind of like sleeping in a tent, right? So sleeping in a tent is just sleeping in a tent, put up a tent, go inside, go to sleep. There is a huge difference between sleeping in a tent because you think it's going to be fun because you're going camping and sleeping in a tent because it's your only option because you don't have a house. Like objectively, it's the same thing, but obviously those two experiences are very different. And I think it's the same living on minimum wage because it's a challenge and you're trying to save money and living on minimum wage through choice and having thousands of dollars left over every month that you're investing into the stock market is a very different experience than living on minimum wage because you work a job that pays minimum wage. You don't have very much money left over at the end of the month and you're not making that choice. I mean, yes, there's an argument to be made that that person could choose to go get a different job, but you know what I mean? (laughs) And that's something that's simple, not easy. And what that led my thoughts towards was the other things that um, that rich people do that are sort of borrowed from people who are not rich. And I'm saying rich a little bit tongue in cheek, right? Like just people who have some kind of means, call it middle class or above. And when I say not rich, well, let me just give you some examples. <laughs> so I think that it's somewhat in fashion right now to exercise some degree of minimalism. And when you don't have a lot of stuff because you decide to, that's called minimalism. And when you don't have a lot of stuff because you can't afford it, like that's being poor. I I would say also tiny houses are another thing that comes to mind. It's, it, I And don't get me wrong, I love tiny houses. I have watched so many tiny house shows. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's tiny house hunters. And then there's like the building tiny house show. I don't know what it's called, but it's like the two guys, right? Like the host and the guy who builds and they build tiny houses and then the people move in. Okay. 
I'll try to find, I'll try to find this and link it in the show notes. Let me make a note. And I enjoy watching it, but I, but I always, every time I watch it, I'm like, yeah, but when I like, we used to just call that having a small house because you couldn't afford anything bigger, right? Like tiny homes are in vogue, but just living in a tiny apartment is like tiny homes are for rich people and uh, tiny apartments are <laughs> for, for poor people. And the, the the last example I was thinking of offhand is like being vegan is for rich people and like not being able to afford meat is for poor people. <laughs> and again, I'm using rich and poor tongue in cheek. Like uh, there's probably a better way to phrase this, but those were the, the, the examples of things that like, oh, we've rebranded and like we have sort of claimed this as our own, even though people have been doing this just to survive for a very long time. And, and I was also thinking about driving a car until it dies. And again, there can can sometimes be this feeling of superiority of like, oh, I don't drive a new car. I drive a very old car. I'm going to drive it until it dies. And that's something, again, that's that's much more comfortable to do when you have means. Like you can drive a car until it dies. That's a much more comfortable thing to do if you can afford the repairs that are kind of come up on it. You don't have to worry about that. If you can buy a new car, if you needed to, if your car died tomorrow, you could go out and buy a new one. It's also much more comfortable to do if you won't lose your job, if you're late to work, if your car breaks down, right? Like I have the kind of job where if I just had something come up in the morning and I needed to take a couple hours to take care of it, that's generally going to be completely fine. And that's not the case for all jobs. All right. So I've been talking through these thoughts for a while. Do I have a point? Have I landed on something? And I think my point is just, I am always, always, always trying to be grateful for everything I have, to be mindful of the privileges that let me live the life that I can live and to be a little bit wary of giving myself too much credit. <laughs> like there was a while I have mentioned this many times, but if you were new here, uh, my, or, well, our combined household savings rate used to be over 50%. And then I decided to buy a big house and now it is less than 50%. And it's like, cool. I mean, I guess in a way you might say, oh, it was like impressive that you could save more than 50% of your income at one point. But I was only doing that like with all of the extra privilege and comfort from that being a choice that I was making right? I could have spent a lot more money than I was. I could have gone out and gone on more lavish vacations. I could have driven a newer car. I could have lived in a bigger place. I could have bought more clothes. I could have gone out to eat more, but I'm not sure that there's any moral value in not doing that. There's value in not doing that for me. What that did for me is it got me closer to the financial goals that I have. I want to reach a place where I'm financially independent so that my work becomes optional because that benefits my mental health. And that's just going to make selfishly make me happier, make my life go more smoothly and make me feel better about how my life's going. But it's not intrinsically good. It's not a moral good. Like the amount of money that you save is morally neutral. Yeah. Okay. I think that was my point. Your savings rate is morally neutral. It reminds me, I I had such an aha moment. I was watching a random Instagram video and the person said, mess is morally neutral. And I was like, well, I can't be right because obviously it's better to have a clean home. And then I was like, well, I mean, actually wait, it might make you feel nice to have a tidy home, but like there's no moral good in not having dirty clothes on the floor. And, and that was, you know, like I said, it was a real aha moment for me. And I think looking at that same lens through saving money, like, again, there is no moral good in saving more and spending less. Your savings rate 
is morally neutral. The good that comes out of that is the result, right? Whether you save 10% of your income, 50%, 80%, that part literally does not matter. If you're setting yourself up for a better life, great. If you are spending less money so you can do more good for other people, great. If you're spending 100% of your income and you sleep amazingly at night, then great. So, okay. Oh, I've been talking for a while. I think I think that's all I got. Let me know what you think. My favorite thing in the whole world is when I get an Instagram DM from someone who said, I listen to the podcast. I agree. I disagree. I relate. I don't relate. Right. You're wrong. Whatever it is makes talking to myself alone in a room feel feel a little less silly. So my friends, that's what I've got for you this week. I hope you're having the best day. Thank you for listening. Like truly you are awesome. I think podcasts are just such a cool way to connect with people who have something in common with you or have a different view, different kind of opinion than you. So thank you for listening. And if you left a review on Apple Podcasts, oh, thank you so much. Uh, the most recent one is from jback86. I hope you never get 86. And if that is the year that you were born, I hope you enjoy your late 30s. I think it's like a really special time. And the one before that from DJ Diz, I do think good podcasts feel like chatting with a close friend. And I wish that you were here in the closet with me doing your DJ thing. (laughs) Anyways, thanks for listening. Have a great week.